1: Hello and welcome to the Autosport Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Kalanorkas. This is a very special edition of the podcast because we're celebrating ourselves, not too outrageously, we hope, with Autosport's 70th anniversary special issue on sale from today. It's been quite a journey to get to this point, not least the 70 years of the publication's proud history, but as you'll of course be aware, the immense challenges 2020 has thrown up have had quite an impact upon us and the special issue we're releasing. It's been a tough year. At one point, we didn't even know if we'd get to this point given the economic challenges the pandemic has posed, but we've ended up with a result of which we are really proud. So this podcast is aimed at celebrating what's inside and explaining what we're trying to do with a dedicated editorialised celebration of our 70th anniversary special. Also, we're going to chat about the changing nature of motorsport in the last 70 years and just generally how things work at Autosport in 2020, even if we're currently not able to get into the office given the necessary restrictions of the lockdown in the United Kingdom. With me tonight are three special guests. I've got Kevin Turner, Autosport's Chief Editor, Autosport Magazine's Deputy Editor, Marcus Simmons, and Autosport Magazine's Editorial Assistant, Matt Q. Now, we have planned to record this episode in the pub over a beer or two, because we're letting our hair down. Why not enjoy ourselves? Uh, but even though we're having to do so remotely, we're still aiming for a slightly more informal feel to this episode. So for a start, what is everybody uh, got to drink alongside this virtual chat? Kev, let's let's start with you. What, what tipple have you brought along?
3: Well, this shows you how difficult the last few weeks have been that I've run out of both wine and beer in the house. Uh so I'm now on uh, I'm now on gin and tonic, which is very very unlike me but the gin was bought for me by former editor of all sort magazine so it's quite appropriate even though it's not my wouldn't be my first choice
1: uh, that's fair enough sounds, sounds very refreshing i hope it's uh hope it's, hope it's good stuff it is. Is, actually, it yeah you need to have drunk all of it doesn't from oh. what i can see or at least the vast majority yeah. long press day was it I, I i just always drink fast it's a problem that's why there's no drink left in the house <laughs> yeah i'll be I've, I've been to i've been out for meals and to the pub of you i'm, I'm well aware of this but don't worry it, it always works it always works out very well salubrious some would say anyway uh, uh marcus what have you got what are you having what are you enjoying tonight
4: well i'm um, uh i get really i'm not too fussy about my choice so um whatever's on offer in the local off license which uh at the moment is a bottle of yellowtail Shiraz red wine uh, which is going down quite nicely and uh, yeah you know, I would imagine I'll uh, plough my way through a bit of it by the end of this. Excellent stuff well, that sounds much more sophisticated than uh, well, I'm sure what everybody else has, has, has got to got
1: to enjoy I don't know uh, Matt you, you tend to surprise me sometimes you, you usually uh, you enjoy the finer things in life let's put it that way what What are you? <laughs>
2: Well, I hope the surprise is that I've not gone for a joke. I was, I was in the uh, Lager Isle of Morrison's Alley, and I dispensed with the idea of going for an ironic Corona, and instead have some gluten-free Peroni. But being as uh, as as you guys have just watched, I've moved into a new flat. I don't have a bottle opener, so I've just uh, sorry, Mum, if you are listening, I've done it. Opened it with my teeth because it's a rented <laughs> flat, so I didn't think the old trick of smashing it against the uh, kitchen work surface and taking a huge chunk out of the faux granite was uh, was appropriate if I want to get my deposit back. But I'm, I'm refreshed. And what about you, Alex?
1: Well, yeah, I was going to say, following on from uh, Matt uncouth opening, opening it with his teeth, uh, I am, because I am always ridiculous, I'm drinking a uh, a Wonderbar IPA, which, despite the title, is actually from the Rascals Brewery in Dublin, in Ireland, so... There we
3: go. I always, have, always have to have something fancy. It's quite an appropriate start because the founding editor of Old Sport, Gregor Grant, was known very much for his uh, his parties and the enjoyment of a beverage. So um, he would probably appreciate that uh, that intro. Good. Well, we can uh, we can we can respond
1: with that when we get the inevitable complaints from people upset about the fact we've talked about alcohol. I think there was a uh, there was certainly uh, we haven't got Stuart Coddling with us, so hopefully there'll be no mention of uh, Belgian sex dungeons because that's tends I mean, that tends to annoy the listeners. But there we go. Anyway. Moving quickly on and away from me getting myself into trouble. Um, Marcus, I'd like to start with you, if that's all right. Ah. If you don't mind me saying, you've, you've been here the longest out of, uh, out of all of us at Autosport in terms of the people on the podcast. Um, first of all, when
4: did you join the magazine and how has it changed in, in all those years? Well, it's changed absolutely massively. And um, I joined in the um, summer of 1996. I've been working at um, Autosport's big rival, which was then called Motoring News, now Motorsport News. For uh, six and a half years, and um, and I, yeah, transferred across in the summer of ninety six, and um, and it was just totally totally different in that in those days. Um, there was a by today's standards an enormous staff on the um, on the magazine, and there was no website back then, um, and and um, the staff was needed because we were working from half past 7 in the morning on a Monday to gone midnight on a Monday and then back in at half 7 on the Tuesday morning and and working until 4 or 5 in the afternoon on Tuesday just to get the magazine out and um these days with the with the processes we've got um it's so much quicker and 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 we have a much smaller staff as a result and and um yeah I said there was no website there was also no internet um or sorry when I say no internet it was the very very early days of the internet and I can remember um not many people had ever had ever used it and and I had a little bit in my last days at Motoring News and um Gary Watkins who's still very much a part of auto sports coverage these days and he was sitting next to me in the office in those days and and he would um he he would say to me oh have you have you surfed the web at all today (laughs) and (laughs) which which and and surfing the web in those days was spending about half an hour trying to find um stuff in various uh locations which were really almost impossible to access but um but yeah back then the everything everything was done on the phone uh, calling up calling up people to find find out the news now uh, these days you get a lot of leads from Twitter so you'll you'll see or, or various uh, social media so you'll see somebody's doing something and then you'll call them up to get the story from that but um literally it was just there were some days where I wouldn't actually even work on the keyboard because i would just be on the phone all day trying to get news trying to get interviews with with various people uh, and um it was a a com- completely different way of working to today and um, so that was that was 96 and i'll venture to suggest that that was probably before matt was even born
1: yeah that was gonna be my next question <laughs> q had you been born by that point
2: <laughs> not that i wasn't listening but what was the date <laughs> sorry. sorry
4: 96
2: Ninety-six. I was born in. I was. Uh, I was a week I was born in March, nineteen
4: ninety-six. Ah, uh, there you go. So, so you you would have been. Uh... And
2: I was already avariciously consuming Autosport just five months old, <laughs> destined destined to be uh, working in Munich's ranks a few yeah. years later.
4: So so yeah, my, my first event as a as an Autosport staffer was um, British Grand Prix, nineteen ninety-six, um, covering the F three support race um and then i went from that immediately to doing british touring car championship and um and the other the other funny thing is that um towards the end of that year i um, had to go to a race abroad and we as i say it was the very very early days of the internet there was one auto sport email account and there was only one machine in the office that you could that it could be dialed into on and, uh, and the Autosport email address was autosport at AOL.com. And uh, there was one office laptop that was able to send emails. So I took this laptop to the forum race and um, with about six pages of instructions in my notebook on how to send an email, <laughs> and, um, it actually took me about four hours to do it um, to my great relief. I managed it in the end. Um, and, uh, you yeah, know, it, it was just, uh, and actually, my first stint, because this is my third full time stint at Autosport, and my first one ended in early 1999. And even at that point, we didn't have email. Uh, we didn't have personal email. It was, there was just the one machine uh, to which, um, to which, Anything was sent to autosport at AOL.com and, and quite often on Monday evenings it would be frequented by the national uh, staff who would be um, who would be downloading the images sent by club racing photographers and um, if they weren't sending red starring the uh, transparencies to the office and quite often that was accompanied by a lot of muttering that somebody had sent 16 photos and it was therefore completely clogging up the Autosport <laughs> inbox and there wasn't space for anything else so um so yeah it was it was a completely different world
2: if you just had one laptop did you all have to do it off your iphones
4: um <laughs> <laughs> Very good question. <laughs>
3: <laughs> just to pick up on that point, I when I, I started as a freelancer for all sport doing those club reports in the early two thousands, and even then I would still fax through my report uh, from my workplace on the with with the boss's permission, I hasten to add, uh, on the uh, on the on the Monday morning. So yeah, even then it wasn't just to fire it in on an email. <laughs> But Kev, even even the uh,
1: the comparative lack of tech that Marcus is talking about is a considerable advancement on what used to happen in the years before, where people would be cycling across London to get various bits of the mag
3: produced and sent to press. Yeah, so reporters would be putting their copy uh, and photos sometimes on a train here, <laughs> the package on a train down to down to London from wherever they were. Because obviously, the in 1950 we had a much more much broader. Uh, train network beaching hadn't done his slicing up job in the sixties yet, and yeah, biking uh, biking across London to get the effectively get the hard the hard copy to the printers a little bit later on um Simon Taylor says you know they used to decamp to the to the print works on a monday to to do it there so yeah it's the 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 technology has made the the transfer of information much faster i mean the continental correspondents used to phone their reports in. Sometimes you can you just imagine that uh, with your with your your Grand Prix report being dictated over the phone. So well, do, you,
1: do you think you could you think you could cope with me uh, uh, dictating two thousand six hundred words down the phone to you, Kev?
3: No, no, you contact me too much as it is on Mondays. I couldn't cope with having to write down your whole report as well. That sounds like a terrible idea. Fair, but I mean, with the, the internet, it's kind of a, it's a double edged sword, isn't it? Because as as Marcus says, it's made it's made the production of the magazine much easier. Uh, and in fact, during lockdown, we've been able to produce it from home, um, which we wouldn't have been able to do ten or fifteen years ago. But of course, it comes with lots of other stuff. So uh, websites, social media, all these things have to be fed all the time. So uh, you know, that's all instant. So there's a lot more it's a const it's a constant uh stress, if you like, a constant work instead of the the peaks and troughs that were there. Even really when I when I started, Mondays and Tuesdays were horrendous. I slept, used to sleep in the office. The, the club desk tended to be in before and stay late than everyone else, um, and quite often would be would be sleeping
4: overnight. Um, and yeah, that wasn't really that long ago. So yeah, I, and and also I, I mentioned that, um, that our press days would would go from on a Monday from half seven till midnight. But but whoever was the um, production editor at the time, and and when I started, it, it was. Um, it was the late Henry Hope Frost. And we would all go home at midnight, but but as the production editor, he would then have to uh, go from the office in Hampton Road in Teddington all the way over to the repro house, which was in um, Pentonville Road in Islington, and spend three or four hours there and probably get to finally get to sleep at about five o'clock in the morning and be back a couple of hours later to, to do the Tuesday. So... Uh, that 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 was a job I was never after <laughs> whereas these days we just need to wander over when we're in the office
1: to uh of the other desks to get the photographs repro and everything Q. we've got it easy right are we or well I mean I don't work on the magazine anymore, but things are things are pretty simple these days
2: um less so obviously, as Marcus said, the staff has been trimmed down, that creates its own challenges because with the website we're you know. Press day, Monday, Tuesday, but then if it's, it's obviously that if you're also a series correspondent, that means traveling back from whichever, you know, UK circuit, whichever international country, filing report on time, then, then coordinating your section of the magazine you look after and then filing, you know, new new stories about angry drivers to, uh, to .com. So obviously it's, you know, we're, we're in a fortunate position to get to see some of these places and, and, you know, get first, uh, get sort of close access to the, the sport we all love, but, um. It is. It is challenging. It is challenging at times. I'd say.
3: I'll just give you an example on that. You know, Autosport used to have a picture editor. Yeah, you know, there isn't. There isn't one now. So we all have to select our own pictures, or whoever's receiving the copy has to do it. So there's things like which actually probably takes us back a little bit towards the early days, in the sense of, in the early days, the team was so small, everyone had to do everything, uh, and it's kind of gone up and then and then back down again, where we're all. we're 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 less specialized if you like we we all do a bit of picture editing a bit of subbing a bit of filing a bit of writing a bit of news writing features and all the rest of it so in that sense it's quite challenging because you've got a very broad spectrum of things you're doing
4: and you're exactly you're exactly right Kev because um it was um the the comparison from when I went from motoring news to autosport um I went from a motoring news that was quite similar to what autosport is now where Everybody did page layout themselves. They um, chose the pictures themselves, um, and and you and there was no such thing as a sub editor, for example. So um, so everything was done really really quickly. Um, then went to Autosport, which was part of Haymarket at the time, um, and was quite a big media company, which had art editors and designers. And I'd never come across this. Phenomenon before, and uh, the same went for sub editors as well, because it was um, quite a big media company. So, um, so suddenly you're in um, you're in that situation, and and um, it was uh, it was a media company uh, doing things properly at the time, um, but um, but the uh, obviously with the advent of uh, all the technology that we've had, it's um, it's kind of gone back to the doing doing lots of things. Um, yourself because you've actually got time to do it well, you you can find time to do it because the because the um technology is so good
2: ah is it though wibble because you're the first one to raise if if indesign or or the the font system we use is down you're the first one to jump on that wibble
4: i i rant when it goes wrong yeah so when when everything's working perfectly it's great but when it's not working perfectly it just becomes a complete nightmare and you want to go back to the 1990s <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I mean, it, 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 I have exactly the same feeling with this uh, remote podcast app that we're using. That will remain nameless, lest it uh, lest my fury get too much. But I um, <laughs> uh, just should just say at this point, whatever whatever we say and however we joke, working at Autosport is massively and utterly rewarding. Um, to the point where uh, some of the, the the magazine production process pages even get named after yourself, as it was uh, as it was with me. One of the pages at the back of the magazine until Kevin Turner renamed it after Matt Q, which was frankly outrageous.
3: Well, that's because you went running off to the website, didn't you? So, um, which of course we're all one team, but actually, you stopped making that page in the magazine, and someone else started. So that person inherited the name.
2: Can I, can I ask about the name? So it's called. It's you know just to plug it up. It's called Matthew's Page of Wonder. Formerly one...
1: Alex Memorial Page. Before we go any further, but we do carry on.
2: And yet you're still here, <laughs> but it's. it's... <laughs> It's a page of wonder. Is that derived from the content being wonderful or the sense of wonder of when the hell is Matt Q going to put it together? What the hell is he going to cover this week? It's meant to be
3: addictive (laughs) over content.
1: (laughs) But, But, you know, the latter. Let's let's just go with that. Uh, But, Kev, you do do mention uh, the website. Obviously, um, you know... Things have massively changed, even since Autosport celebrated its 60th anniversary back in 2010. You think about the the rise of the smartphone, which was just sort of breaking out back then, but also everything that, that that's just changed how everyone consumes their news. And in terms of you know even 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 the ways we're reading the internet is just so massively different, even in the last 10 years. But it's an important point in the in the Autosport 70th uh, special issue. We we talk about how motorsport has changed. We're going to come on to discuss that in a few moments. But one of the key points of that is the the complete not Complete, but compared to say even 10, 20, 30 years ago, the lack of access that the media has to the drivers is massively reduced. Uh, Like, I, I really don't think that's understood well enough by the readers, and I don't mean that like horribly. I don't think you know that's that's all fair enough. We, you know, we do a great way of presenting it, the teams do as well. Everybody's very professional and working very, very hard. But the fact of the matter is, access, if you think about Formula One, for example, is incredibly reduced, even in times you know away from 2020 in the lockdown where the the press can't even get in the paddock at this point so that has changed how we deploy our resources and our resources are our stories that's both in the magazine to a lesser extent because obviously the print deadlines are broadly similar to what they have been from what marcus was describing back in the 90s throughout the website considering the amount of time between races time of day people are reading their news and that's where you come back to sort of the smartphones you know in normal life away from the pandemic, you know, you've got to publish it. I know from my time working on the website as editor of the Autosport Plus section, you've got to publish your features at a certain time of day to hit whether that's commuter traffic or people just reading their desktops at lunchtime, things like that. So how do we do that? And, um, you know, across uh, uh, the magazine and autosport.com, which these days is edited by the lovely Hayden Cobb.
3: I think I thought I'm going to pick up on your access point first, because I think that's a really crucial one, because one of the criticisms of modern motorsport and sometimes as a kind of result of that all sport as well is the lack of characters in motorsport. And I think we, we all here are fortunate enough to know people in motor racing who definitely are, who are definitely big characters. Um, There are plenty of them around, um, but you don't always get to see them so much. And partly that's because of the much more controlling PR. Um, You know, Simon Taylor, when he wrote about the early days of all sport, um, in a previous issue, you know, he pointed out that they could just ring up any Grand Prix driver at pretty much any time and just have a chat. Because you have to remember the Grand Prix drivers' time wasn't, uh, you know, they weren't constantly being chased by everyone. So they could have quite close relationships with specialist journalists um, and could probably get away with saying more um, of what they wanted to say. There wasn't a PR filter, if you like. Now we hear, everyone hears from drivers all the time because we get sound bites and, and things on TV, but it doesn't really tell you very much. Um, and if you combine that with the amount of focus and time that drivers have to spend on, on their profession now, it's they of course they don't have time to do all this other stuff and all the things that we would consider to be, oh, isn't it a character that he goes around drinking and all the rest of it? But you know, if a modern racing driver was rocking up you know, drunk on the starting grid, people will be asking some pretty serious questions. So, you know, the whole way that drivers have to act and the way that we interact with them uh, has, ha- you know, has changed quite a lot. And obviously we have to work around that, which is why, you know, for the 70th, you know, we worked months ahead for you to have, for Alex, to have an interview with, with Lewis Hamilton instead of, oh, it's, it's, we're doing it next week, let's give him a call now. Um, so you have to plan, I guess, that much further ahead. Um, the other thing that I thought was interesting from what from what Simon Taylor said about Gregor was that he would just print rumors and tidbits, some of which would be true, some of which wouldn't be. Um, and I think you'd get away with that a bit more in those days, partly because it was that kind of niche thing. And also, there was no one to check it. Unless you upset someone, there weren't going to be another 15 websites that were going to point out that you got it wrong. So I think there's you've got that weird thing of having to having less time to put things out there, but you need to be... Accurate, and that's yeah. That that to me is is this is the main part of our job. We want to we want to we want to be entertaining, and we want to be informative, and it's got to be accurate, but it's got to be quite quick when it comes to the website.
2: Yeah, you know, Kev, Kev raises some good points there. Sort of, uh, we all know people that you know you, it, when you're in a paddock in in a championship, you get quite chummy with some drivers, and then you ask, you know. You, just as sort of as it was Pally almost, you'll ask three or four questions and then be like, right, now I'm going to put the recorder on and ask you proper stuff. And that's when you can see the sort of the button being pressed and then it's suddenly PR mode on. And, you know, but even, even in top flight championships to keep it vague, there are drivers who like a drink and like a smoke, which, you know, according to some people that constitutes a personality in, in motorsport. And there are still those people around, but it's just, it's lesser spotted. But just going back to what you said earlier, Alex, about this idea of access, it is sort of, you know, not to go well as autosport, but it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? Because on the one hand, we can't get anywhere near as close to Grand Prix drivers. On the other hand, is that motorsport has so much more exposure now. It's not a case of race highlights being played two hours later or whatever. There's YouTube compilations, you know, podcasts, for example, there's drivers appearing on those and and whatever. And and I, I certainly before I was, uh, went to uni, I used to write race reports based on just the TV feed. And that's, that's something now which I think Autosport does very well is that for every race report that is written by a, a quality journalist, you can tell because there is that 20, 30, 40 percent of info in the race report that you don't get from from watching the TV feed because there has been that sort of proliferation of media. And, and we as reporters have had to sort of evolve with that and be a bit more, a bit more specialist and a bit more, clued up and sort of uh, earn our supper a bit better maybe
1: just just to pick you up on that you mean the sort of post you know the 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 after analysis that would say go in autosport magazine or on autosport.com plus rather than the on the flag report
2: yeah
3: yeah i think you've gone from with with the magazine in particular and then the the all sport plus element of the website you you we're we're not telling the what because by the by the sunday night everyone knows what the what is it's it's the why's and the how's Stuff you didn't know, which is what we're, which is why it's still worth being in paddocks. Why you still want to speak to people, you know, um, because there's always a reason for for things happening, and it's not automatically obvious. You know, you can take a guess. I will watch, the, I quite often watch the TV TV feed, and then speak to Alex and uh, sit, see if I've if I've guessed the right reasons for why things have happened. Um, but that, and that's why you need you do need people in in the paddock, and all sport has always been in the paddocks, the service parks, wherever. And I think that's that's a key part of it as well.
2: Uh, the other thing I'd say about us in sort of having to go the, a little bit further to include a lot more detail is also the way that the world's changed for sort of one of the better phrases. It's, it's got smaller when, you know, you, everything's so easily accessible on the internet. There's travel documentaries and even sort of like flights and how, uh, you know, how, how you can sort of get anywhere within 24 hours. Autosport is no longer perhaps with the greatest respect to our predecessors, the travel diary it once was, where there weren't a, few, a couple of hundreds of words in each report sort of giving the colour of the place because, you know, people have, have been there. They've seen they've seen these amazing locations on TV. And so now that, that space, I would say, you know, if, if we had to blow our own trumpet a little bit, I'd say that is, you know, packed with a lot more analysis. And, you know, I, I suppose the the mentality I sort of go with it is it doesn't matter whether, say, for example, New Mexico Formula One circuit is is in an airfield in Northamptonshire. You know, swap it with Silverstone; it doesn't matter. It's just about what happens on that black strip of tarmac. It doesn't matter where it is. So I so say we're we're quite good now, at being focused and and you know, and although there is still colour in reports, it's maybe just focusing a different way about the actual racing, and you sort of get the insight that's well worth your three ninety nine every week.
3: It's funny because it really actually quite irritates me reading old also sports and having to get through those first two or three hundred words of what the local vicinity is like, because I, I really don't care. I'm reading it because I want to know about the cars and the racing. But uh, so, some readers, you know, even now will sometimes say, oh, you know, I liked that. I like that color. I like that setting the scene and all the rest of it. So perhaps that's more of a, a generational thing or, a, or or it comes down to what you're reading the report for. I, I've never been reading race reports to find out about the local vicinity. If I was going to do that, I, I'd buy a travel guide. But that's, that's maybe just uh, maybe that's just me. No, I'd, I'd agree with that. But, um, just
1: before we're going to come on to our, our next sort of segment of the podcast, I just want to, uh, just in, insert a quick anecdote about the, uh, just explaining the lack of access we have to, to, drivers in that when I covered, uh, George Russell during his, uh, championship winning year in GP3 in 2017, I was, he got his phone number, texting various times. We did interviews, set out things, you know, not, not a huge amount, but just enough. But anyway, yeah. Next time I came across him after I moved on to cover, uh, Formula E when Kev was devastated to lose me from the magazine and had to put up with, uh, Matt Hughes inadequacies. Um, Thank you. I... Oh, yeah. uh, 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 where to come Formula E anyway the next time I, I, I bumped into George was at the Autosport Awards at the end of 2018 by this point he's already announced the Williams Formula 1 driver for 2019 we're having a little chat uh, he, he was, he was uh, introduced as, the, as the, the newly crowned Formula 2 champion he was walking down the steps uh, lovely photo opportunity and he said oh do you mind just uh, passing something along um, you know just, just text me on WhatsApp so that I can, um, I can put it on my social media I said yeah absolutely no problem uh, and as I turned to go away he turned to I think either jean eric Verne or Sebastian Augier one of the two people in the vicinity i heard him say oh it's okay i'll be changing my number uh, at the start of next year so there we go Fair play to him, you know that is a Formula One driving deal. What he likes now, but we are going to move on to the next section of our podcast, which is talking a little bit about, uh, and this is included in the bookazine as well, how motorsport has changed in the last seventy years because you know it, it's it's a massively different different beast now, and that is that is something that I think is quite relevant to the topic we're we're discussing, Kev, because we're quite often, as you've alluded to, getting told how auto sport was much better back in the day, usually by people who were simply wrong shielding behind anonymous cowardly twitter accounts uh but you know motorsport is a completely different beast the magazine is a completely different beast it's 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 totally different to what it was in 1950 the website is almost top dog now let's face it that's where most people consume our news um you know just, the, the world is the world is different so how can how have we explained how motorsport has changed in the book Zine?
3: i think the two i mean you're you're right and the people talk about a golden era but are quite vague as to when that was, and I think that's because people's goal near is really more related to their age um, of when they came to the sport, um, and and it's a bit like your favourite film, your favourite music. It tends to be from a particular point in your life before you became a full adult and everything became hard and complicated. Um, but the two, there are two, two main things that kind of sort of grind my gears a bit when it comes to comparing modern motorsport to old one. One, one is. One is, um, oh, the old drivers used to be so versatile, as though the modern drivers couldn't do that. And my argument to that is that, you know, uh, yeah, Sterling Moss or Jim Clark were going to beat Roy Salvadori or Richie Genther in a Formula 1 car, a sports car, a touring, whatever it was. Yeah, uh, they were racing, by and large, the same group of people in different kit. And surprise, surprise, the people who were good in one were normally better in the other. Now you've got so many more professional drivers. It's all much more specialist. The people at the top of, you know, say DTM or IndyCar or the World Endurance Championship are sort of 98%, 99% as good as the people that did make it to F1. They either should have done, could have done, did, but didn't get the opportunities and fell out again. So you can't just dip in and beat them and blow them away. So I think that's a a bit of a nonsense really to say drivers aren't versatile these days. And actually, as people like Fernando Alonso have shown, they are versatile when they get the opportunity to go and do Indy and Le Mans. They tend to be pretty competent. The other one is how similar the cars are because of uh, regulations. Now, my two points to that are, one, you need the regulations to be tight. Otherwise, we'd have cars with incredible downforce or electronic control. The drivers wouldn't be doing anything. The overtaking would be minuscule, but there wouldn't be any because the braking distance is both so, so short. And nobody would be able to afford it because all the technology would be incredibly expensive. But the other thing is all the racing cars are going to end up looking the same because that's how evolution works you go towards the ideal design um in the given scenario we've been making racing cars for over you know 120 years now we know what doesn't work apart from nissan with the lmp1 car we know that you don't have the engine in the front and you don't drive the front wheels if you want a proper racing car so by by definition, you're going to get less less variety. And I spoke to Mark Williams, the ex McLaren designer, about this, and he said he could come up with a set of rules that would give you ten or eleven different designs the first year, but year two, year three, year four, everyone would just work out what worked best, copy the best, lose the worst bits, and within two or three years, you'd end up uh, you'd end up with the same thing. So yes, it is frustrating that cars look the same, uh, and multi multi make racing has always interested me more than single make. Um, but there are reasons reasons behind this um, and you have to admire the the ability of modern teams' Mercedes. How have they had a, a, an advantage of almost a percent over the rest of the field this year? That hadn't been seen since the 90s. How do you do that in such a restricted environment? The level that they're operating at is incredible and that sort of thing that it's not the same as a Lotus 72 going sideways, but it's impressive in a different way.
4: I think one 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 thing I'd like to add to that is that um it is true that uh, modern racing cars do look very similar because of the regulations um now when i was a when i was a kid in the mid 1970s i could look at a grid of formula one cars from that era in the relatively early days of aero and wings and you know the old cliche is you could if they were all painted white you could tell which was the Brabham which was the Tyrrell which was the Ferrari etc cetera, etc cetera. and that's true but um, to go if if you took that back another ten years to the mid nineteen sixties before before there were wings on the cars um, I would say that every car was that cigar shape um, that looked the same Kevin you're you're much better on that era, but I would I would argue that it would be very, very difficult to differentiate a Lotus from a Brabham from a, from a Ferrari from that era.
3: I, I, um, I think you're right. I can almost hear Marcus Pyre saying, I'd be able to tell the difference, and <laughs> I reckon I'd have a good shot at it. But yeah. I think that there are people who are into modern F1 who could say, actually, I reckon if I took the 2020 field, I could tell the difference between the different cars. I think if you're that into it. But, yeah, yeah. I take your point. I do think that the, the, the 60s cars were uh, – yeah, they 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 were were pretty similar. That's that's why if one likes the eagle because it obviously they had this more pointy, sharky grille at the front.
2: Well, it it depends what you want, ultimately, isn't it? Because you know you go back because there are a couple of sort of misconceptions. One, I would argue, and it's a piece I've, I've written for the magazine is that you know this idea that Mercedes are running around with it, uh, running away with everything in Formula One. The the sort of Inconvenient truth, if you like, is that Formula One has always had super teams. Brabham, Lotus, Williams, Ferrari, McLaren, uh, you know, Ferrari again, uh, Red Bull, Mercedes and whatever. Uh, that that covers the last, uh, what, 40, 40, nearly 50 years of, of, of Formula One. There's always been dominant teams. At least now we have more than eight cars finishing a race. At least now we have, you know, potentially the rest of the podium are within a minute of the lead driver. So yes, you know, racing at Sochi, isn't a massive stride forward in one sense but in other ways motorsport is more better and and you know i i personally am the kind of person that can get excited by a citron saxo with a roll cage so watching you know hamilton in a you know average what i don't know 140 150 mile level lap on his own is is spectacular before you get to sort of 20 of them doing it all at the same time so much more still in that still in a good place
3: yeah, I think I think there there are a few things. I think, first of all, the overall point is that it's got much more competitive. One of the things I've done in the the seventieth is is a is a is a, uh, a big graph that you do need to look at for a moment. But it basically shows the F one field getting closer together. Uh, it it goes up and down a little bit. Um, I mean, not surprisingly, the two closest periods are when you've taken out one of the variables. So in the seventies, when pretty much everyone had a Cosworth DFV and a Hewland gearbox, the field was pretty close, depending on whether Fry could get its act together or not during that time. Uh, and then in the 2000s, as all the manufacturers got close together on their engine development, eventually there was an engine freeze. That was incredibly close. The, the closest season in F1 history in terms of front to back is uh, is 2009. So that's definitely a plus that you've got more, you know, is more competitive. You know, people think Mercedes domination this year is bad. Imagine Alfa Romeo in 1950. I mean, it was lapsed different. I think the, one of the problems now is that those periods of domination last much longer. So, because because teams do a better job, so uh, it's much harder to overturn them. You know, uh, Colin Chapman every few years would come out with a, gra- a you know groundbreaking innovation that move things on, and that would that would leap them above a Ferrari that had be- better resources and a better engine, and it would go backwards and forwards. Whereas whereas now everyone is doing such a good job, if you've got the advantage, you know, Red Bull held on to it for ages until there's a rule change. Mercedes have held on to it. Um and I think that's probably what people get fed up with is is the periods of domination, the cycles, if you like, are much longer.
1: Just as a as a quick aside, where do we all stand on the word bookazine? I I noticed Matt Q and I are are keen to keen to use it. Kev, you you refer to it as the seventieth. So which one do you prefer?
3: Well, I've been, I've, I mean, do people, do people know in the wider world what a bookazine is? I mean, is that not a bit of an internal thing? I mean, when I first used it in a meeting with, with management, and bearing in mind that management usually are the ones that come up with the nonsense terminology, I was, I was berated for using the word bookazine. And actually, I think that is entirely fair. So, um, but if you don't, if you call it magazine, then people get confused with obviously the weekly mag. So, I don't mind. I've, I've started calling it the yeah, the 70th special or celebration issue or whatever. But, I mean, so long as you like it, you can call it what you like, really.
2: Exactly. Even if it's wrong, if you say it over and over again, it becomes the truth. And that's how history is made. So, look as it is. Thank you, Donald Trump. I think i yeah. were
4: quite right to great you, Kevin, because I think it's <laughs> a horrendous word and, and um, just a, a product of uh, the, the modern the modern times that we're living in. And, yeah, I, I Awful. What would you like to call it, Marcus? We could try oh, that yeah. out. Just, just the seventieth anniversary special. The um, seventieth
2: anniversary special. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. We don't
4: want any. We don't want any of that added in. I'm, I'm, um, I'm snappy. I am. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> but Marcus, Marcus, coming back to you, I just wanted to ask you uh, one more question before we come on to talk about what's what's in the book, he, No, sorry, the seventieth anniversary special itself. Is there anything you could say particularly stands out as something that motorsport has lost when we think about what it's like in 2020 compared to what it has been like in the past?
4: Right. Give me a minute here. <laughs>
0: Pause.
4: <laughs> um, I, w- I would say that um, motorsport, motorsport lost a bit of spontaneity and um, a little bit of soul. At the, at the top ends, really. Um, you have you have to bear in mind that I'm knocking on a bit. I'm 53 years old now, and I got into um, motor racing in the mid 70s when my dad started taking me to races. And and um, and, and if you look at <clears throat> right, let's take Formula One. Um, the first Grand Prix I went to had a three car McLaren team, um, and it had a load of one car teams in it as well. Um, and um, and that was reflected all the way all the way through the sport so i i think that um the it has become a little bit too obsessed with structure and homogeneity and um, that um perhaps we need to get away from um just just to make it a, a bit more interesting really i mean and, uh, i've i've often said this over the years but In the late 70s, I would read, there would be... uh, We do Formula 1 previews in the magazine now, but it's basically a list of the last 10 winners and the pole position record and the fastest lap record and when you can watch it on TV and stuff. But uh, but back then, it would actually be a... It would be the... When you read Autosport on Thursday before a Grand Prix, it was the first time you knew who was actually doing the Grand Prix that weekend uh, because you would see whether... McLaren were running a third car or whether uh, Surtees had managed to get two new drivers for the weekend or or, or anything like that. So um I, and and also I think that we have the other thing is that and we we have touched on this uh, with the with the question of access to drivers. Um I think that and this is especially the case with the younger drivers in the sport. They have been media trained uh and haven't yet developed the character to combine that uh with being an interesting person so um when when you talk to when you talk to young drivers the ones who they, you, you can tell immediately the ones who have been media trained um because they can be very vanilla uh with with what they what they say to you and uh and you'll have um You'd have got this, Alex, from when you were covering Formula Two and Formula Three. Uh, you could tell instantly the ones who hadn't been, uh, but you could also tell the ones who.
1: Oliver Roland stands out. Although I'm sure he has been media <laughs> yeah. trained at some point.
4: You could also tell um, the the ones who, once they get a little bit older, maybe three or four years older, would actually be really, really proper proper blokes and and give some give some really good stuff and be really entertaining. So, in a lot of those cases, you end up going to the teams, the engineers and and whatever to get the interesting stuff about them. But uh but yeah that's that's stuff that the sport has uh, perhaps got a bit wrong, I think. Um but it, um it's not a motorsport thing is it? It's a it's a sport in general thing. Um uh, who who's heard uh who's heard any interesting interviews with a footballer over the last year or two?
2: <laughs> How bad are you?
4: <laughs> yeah. So um, <laughs> obviously, I
2: can't cite one, but I like, will
4: disagree.
1: <laughs> Marcus Rashford.
4: Yeah, I, well, I, I don't guess. know. I don't know if he's
1: done good interviews. He just, he's just
4: a great person, isn't he? Sorry. Yeah, okay. he, he's he's a, he's a great person. But if you uh, if he's talking about a Manchester United performance twenty minutes after a game, then perhaps not. I don't know. Yeah, I think um, I think. W- I think sport in general has lost that um has lost an element of its capacity to be spontaneous and and in, in Formula One's case, uh you yeah, know, that very much came in during the during the Bernie era. Uh two car teams, everything everything lined up immaculately. And um yeah, that that's before we get onto the subject of the boring circuits that have been designed um over the years and and yeah the the constant um constant rule changes and i think uh, yeah I, I i do um i do think that we need to get back to a slightly more organic uh state in the sport i i, I can see exactly what you're saying but i don't think it would happen i don't think it's po- i think it's possible with
3: the drivers actually i think you can you can do that with the personalities and I, th- I think you sometimes see a little bit of that with um say the the lando norris on esports when you do kind of get to see that kind of backwards and forwards a little bit more so i think i think the the driver thing is fair and i think american sport shows that you you can be more interesting around the dry the drivers or the the participants if you like in terms of the organic teams that is an engineer's nightmare if you want to perform at the maximum you want to minimize the variables absolutely to know everything and it's in fact, I said in the in the 70th special, if you're into motorsport for variety and unpredictability, the golden age has been and gone. Like right? because everyone's too good at it now, you're not going to have cars breaking down from the lead very often. It's just you know, everyone's too good at it. But I think if you're into it for the for the pursuit uh, for the competition and the the pursuit of perfection, for one of a better phrase, then there's a lot of good things out there at the moment. And then you've got those other things that fall in between. So the the classic one is the lack of overtaking. You know, Mm -hmm. I don't like DRS. I think that's that's that offends me as a purist because it's a false overtaking. It's usually pretty boring a DRS overtake. But on the other hand, without it, you've got this. You know, some of the some of the races. You know, this is a problem that that was people were aware of in the late 80s into the 90s. You know, the dirty air and it just got worse and worse and worse when they brought in refueling, that really knocked overtaking on the head because everyone just sat there and waited for the pit stops and Michael Schumacher was better at nailing the in-lap and out-lap than everyone else and game over. So I, I, I very much hope that the aerodynamic problem can be addressed with the 2022 regulations. Some categories have done have done a decent job with it. IndyCar, done a quite a good job. So there's definitely some things that... That can improve and that should be improved, but I don't think the, the organic one-car teams, three-car teams, as cool as it was, I, I, I can't see how you can you can't you can't unlearn things. I think the knowledge is too is too great, really, for, for that now.
4: No, but I I I think I'd, I'd quite like, um, yeah, for example, uh, Mick Schumacher is leading the Formula Two championship this year with Prima, uh, and he's. Almost certainly going to end up in Formula One with Haas next year. Now, I'd, I'd quite like Mitch Schumacher to go um, Formula One with, with Primo running a one. Actually, they probably wouldn't want to run a one-year-old Ferrari. <laughs> <laughs> they would. They would this year anyway. <laughs> but you can, but you can uh, see where I'm thinking, uh, and and just um, just get more of those small small teams onto the F1 grid. I just think that would be quite interesting, really. And and um, and going back to uh, another point you made, you, you mentioned um, Lando Norris in the context of the young drivers, but I always actually found when when he was in uh, when he was in the F three uh, European F three Championship that he was actually really really good. To um, uh, uh, he he may have been media trained at that point, but uh, but he certainly uh, the the comments that he gave and the quotes that he gave were uh, proper soul searching uh you you knew that that was what he was thinking uh when he was talking to you it wasn't just uh it wasn't just what he'd been media trained to do he was he was um he was very very good actually um yeah and uh, (laughs)
3: No, that's that's fair about Lando. I think he's, he's always been he's been pretty good. And on the on the on the bringing teams through up into F1, I think that's definitely an issue that that again, hopefully the 2022 regulations are, are going to try and address is to you know is to level out the playing field, make it cheaper to get into F1, um, because we do need more teams. I mean, there are more than 20 brilliant drivers in the world that we'd like to see in a Formula One car. So more teams that are competitive. I think they've got to be good teams. I think the the twenty ten teams that were just off the back, you know, you want to make it so that the, the new teams coming in and can be competitive. You know, like you know, you know Frank Williams getting a march that was a bit rubbish. Oh, we've we've put together a competent package with the FW six, and we were in the ballpark, and then suddenly they're away. So yeah, that 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 entry level point does have to be lower. Mm. Just as, a, as another
1: random aside, uh, at the end of the second Formula One test, back in almost the pre-COVID lifetime, obviously that, you know, it, it was a, it was in the world, but it really sort of hadn't bit home in Europe and, and America at this point. Uh, very end of testing in Barcelona. We're filming in the paddock. come with Jonathan Noble and Luke Smith. And Lando Norris comes over, interrupts our video, wants to know what we're doing, holding an enormous slice of garlic bread. I don't know, but he was just, he was, had his <laughs> he done his way to the airport, took his garlic bread with him. And that will never see the light of day because of the terms of uh, what press, what, you know, written media are using inverted commas that the uh, the listeners can't see are allowed to film uh, in the Formula One paddock. But anyway, as I, as I digress, I'd also just like to point out that I think uh, when it comes to inserting a, a new bit of spontaneity in soul, I think Matt Q's doing a very good job at that, judging by uh, some, of the, some of the very good stories that he always comes back to the office with. Thank you. Good. Okay. Go. <laughs> right. Well, well we should move on the to the
2: publication though, aren't they? So...
1: Sadly not. I mean, no, I mean, bloody hell. Most of them definitely not. Anyway, um, <laughs> let's move on to the final element of this podcast, which is, we're going to talk back again about the, uh, the 70th special. And it has a theme, which is, which is, which is Kev, I think I'm right in saying different to quite a lot of the auto sports sort of celebratory issues that we've done in the past. Um, And the theme is the greatest. So why did you, why did you go that way? What was the, what was the decision behind
3: making it a sort of editorialized celebration? Um, Well, I started thinking about this at the end of last year, partly because I like that. I like to think about anniversaries and stuff anyway. Um, And I was looking through, not just. I've been, I've been been thinking about this issue coming up
1: since I joined the magazine in 2017. So that, that tells you how sad I am. And And I know Q did as well when
3: he joined. I won't
2: be in this one. (laughs) Sorry, Martin, we are going to have to cut here. What a load of horse shit that is.
3: Well, we can, ha- we can have a separate conversation about that, because you are wrong.
4: But I'll tell you about Ooh. that. We can t- I can tell you about that when we're not recording. Um, Pick my good so, son, yeah, so um, about two years after I started um, it, they started thinking about the 50th anniversary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so I looked at, looked
3: at lots of anniversary issues, sport and others. I mean, I worked on the 60th um for all sport worked on the i was the editor at at motorsport news for the 60th and looked a lot of other ones um in other fields and almost always the idea was let's have a run through year by year or decade by decade and in fact i've got a collection i'm fortunate enough to have a collection of all sports and we've done that every time there was a major anniversary and I just thought let's just just do something different i don't want to do the 2010 plus 10 years um uh but I do want to talk about the the greatest things in uh in motorsport. Uh, and the other problem is you if you do it that way um yeah by the year you're always going to start every section with F1 basically so it's gonna be F1 F1, other stuff. Um so I thought well let's do it by let's do let's have just the greatest and it could be across any category. It can be the greatest F1 drive it can be the greatest rally car it could be the greatest touring car it could be the greatest sports car races and so you've got this theme running through the whole thing and it, it gave us a, I felt a, a nice flexibility so um, we could we, you know we've done we've tried to interview some of the real greats of the sport we've picked out a great car from each decade uh, sorry from each discipline after our podcast debates which we'll come to later because I know that both myself and Matt disagree with some of our own conclusions which is quite fun and um, and yeah, I, yeah the, the, the lead interview I'm going to throw back to throw back to you there Alex so the yeah, we wanted to go for some of the big names in motorsport um, in each section. And who, who's who's the biggest name in F1 at the moment? It
1: is Lewis Hamilton. Yeah, there's no, it's no question about that. And um, yeah, as, as I think you mentioned right right back at the beginning of this podcast, Kev, this was a long time in the making. I think we first spoke to Mercedes about what we might do just after I got back from uh, the aborted, the, the, the you know, the never taking place Australian Grand Prix in March. Um, we were at the time, everyone was like, well, what are we going to do what are we going to fill the magazine with what are we going to fill the website with in all this time before the season which we don't even know is going to take place i think rather naively i thought you know all, all the teams and drivers yeah they'll they'll be they'll be willing to make themselves available really easy we find and we'll all be good but quickly and understandably and naturally and totally uh, forgivably brought down to earth with a bump having asked mercedes and they were like yeah we 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 don't really know at this point come back to us in a few months and and obviously as i said at the beginning of the podcast you know we have plans to bring out the 70th anniversary special earlier than we are but we couldn't do it because of the pandemic like it had a big impact i had a you know it, it's just one of those unavoidable consequences we i think we've done an excellent job in bringing it out everybody's worked very very hard on top of what is an already as you said marcus for a massively reduced staff compared to what it was in the past an enormous workload so i think we should be really proud of ourselves and um, but yeah anyway speaking spoke to mercedes uh, throughout the summer eventually uh they were like yep yeah, we want to do this. Had a chat with their head of communications at the Monza race, the Italian Grand Prix. And yeah, eventually spoke to Lewis uh, at what was the Nürburgring race, the race where he equaled Michael Schumacher in 91 Formula One wins. Obviously, he's gone on to break that since. Did have to do it via Zoom, but that is 2020 for you. You know, I think that's what most of our interviews are going to be like um, for the seeable future until that vaccine that's just been announced. Hopefully brings back some normality, and it was it was a really it was a really excellent experience. There was me, me and Lewis, and one of the Mercedes PRs on this Zoom call, and you know we had twenty minutes. You know it was it was really interesting because this has been you know in addition to everything we've talked about with the pandemic, this has been a, a fascinating year twenty twenty when it comes to society. You know I, I've joked about Donald Trump. You know he's just been unseated by Joe Biden. You know it's all it's, it's all over the news that you know people are celebrating. I'm sure some people are very upset by it. Make it that what you will, um, but. Also, also this year, you know, the campaign for uh, racial racial equality has reached new heights. Thankfully, excellen- excellently, Lewis Hamilton has been a vocal promoter of that. You know, he's a, he's a key figure in the Black Lives Matter movement, and you know, even though you know, he he did go marching in in London in the summer during the lockdown, but he's brought it to Formula One, which is his platform. He has, I think, there's there's a there's a Grand Prix racing feature. I remember Mark Gallagher put together last year that says that basically, if you add in all of his network on Instagram alone, plus all the people he knows, he is capable of reaching a billion people. So that's what he's doing. He's using his platform to promote a cause that he really cares about and one that is a tremendous and worthy cause. So it was just really fascinating talking to him not only about his driving, but about what drives him, what gets him out of the bed in out of bed in the morning you know what what kind of a human being he's turned into and I think that's a really interesting part to throw into the greatest debate because he's the only Formula One driver in that context to have done that and I think that sort of adds to his his legacy his legend if you only want to use some cliches obviously you've got Jackie Stewart Kev who I know you write about in in your feature about defining the greatest obviously you consider what he changed in Formula One what he brought to Formula One but in terms of, in terms of Lewis Hamilton undeniably the greatest of his era, although I know Fernando Alonso pushes him close but just doesn't have the record. It's ha- that's what sets Lewis apart is 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 this is this is this new thing that he's willing to talk about and, and what drives him. So yeah, it was a fascinating interview. Uh, I think we've got nearly half an hour out of Lewis Hamilton's time, which I think is pretty good. And yeah, you can read the read the feature in the
3: uh, in the bookazine, because I'm gonna say the word. <laughs> and that's that's what I wanted to do really, was to try and have these in-depth interviews where you could tease a bit more out of of people than than you would you know you would normally get the chance to do, I mean you know Gary Watkins Marcus mentioned earlier, interviewed Tom Christensen um who was a bit reticent about yeah you know, he didn't like the idea of being called the greatest sports car driver, but he was prepared to talk about what he thought it took and and how he adapted um sebastian loeb we interviewed um uh, and that that was fascinating about his the early parts of his career and some of the things he came up against. Um, Roger Penske, yeah, you know, another absolute legend, um, and a huge history in the sport. I mean, you could could devote an entire special just to him, really. And then one person that did manage to get an interview face to face in a break between lockdowns was Marcus, because you managed to get Colin Turkington and Andy Rouse together for um for the touring car one, which must have been quite good fun.
4: Yeah, I, I did. <clears throat> I managed to um I used to I, I managed to get a, a massively studious um, classy rear-wheel drive touring car expert, together with Colin Turkington. <laughs> um, and it was it was a really really nice hour and a, hour and a bit that we we spent at Silverstone because Colin had to go off and um, do uh, do a shakedown for the upcoming BTCC weekend um, later that day. But yeah, the the, the similarities between them. But, Beyond the fact that they're um, both four-time champions in the BTCC, are, are, are quite uh, quite extensive actually. Um, both both I would say <clears throat> have performed in a very similar way um, in um, in their touring car exploits, and and um, and they're both very modest, not not blowing their own trumpet, um, people. Uh, and they had met each other before, but not um beyond chatting for a few minutes but they they really really got on in the interview and it was it was really nice and and what um what we've done uh, you know just to to talk about uh, the the different approaches because we've got we've obviously got the magazine and the website or or should I say uh, the maga book or say <laughs> <laughs> <So, laughs> so, um the that that is very Donald Trump anyway <laughs> sorry so the feature I've written for that is um, a bit of narrative from me and then quotes from from Colin and andy and and that that's a nice piece but what we're going to do for the website is uh just just have the the whole transcript of the of the interview which which actually um, has some quite nice interjections between Colin and Andy um asking each other questions which is exactly what I wanted to happen so I was I was setting the setting the tone for it and then the, the two of them were going to talk. So yeah, and, and the the two of them ended up um getting on really well and uh it was a it was a it was a very good piece and um lovely, lovely to arrange. But uh we do have the slight problem that um the uh the Bookazine MAGA book seventieth anniversary special uh, comes out uh in the week after the deciding round of the 2020 British Touring Car Championship, in which case Colin Turkington may well be a five-time British Touring Car champion. Uh, so slightly, slightly itchy about that. But um, we've got. Uh, but they are the two people who've won the BTCC four times or more.
3: Well, and and Lewis Hamilton may well be uh, by the time this even goes out, he may be a. Uh... They've added another world title and matched Mark Schumacher's seven, of course. So that is, uh, that is the one, one downside of, uh, of print deadlines. You do have to commit eventually. And then it's once it's gone, it's, uh, it's gone. But in, in, in return, you get that, that tangible feel of a,
1: thing in your hands that you just can't get the same on a website or on your phone let's face it now just uh, just just as we're not too far removed from talking about the touring car section of the 70th special um you i believe this is a chance i've got to hand to you to explain why you're annoyed that the bmw m3 e30 was selected as the greatest touring car
2: uh, what, what's your problem i have so so i'm not going to argue the e30 down i just I wasn't satisfied how uh, how swiftly the RS500, the Ford, the Ford Sierra was uh, discounted because... Uh, just just know, to the, very
1: quickly explain, this was selected in a, a series of podcasts we did back in the summer, which obviously was when Autosport turned 70, but do carry yeah, on. Sorry, yeah.
2: Uh, and uh, I think I can, I think there were plans afoot, but I couldn't make the Touring car podcast, so I, I was left out. But I... Uh, you know, both of them are cool homologation special cars, and you know you get Johnny Cotto E thirty Evo threes with extra wing angles and stuff as as a result. And they were successful across Europe, but I I consider the RS five hundred to be the definitive touring car. It's, you know brake horsepower starts with five five you know five hundred plus. What it achieves, how how far Rouse uh, took it on the you know the nineteen eighty eight brands Hatch with, with Steve Soper. I'd say it was faster it was it's you know it was a faster car more evocative for me some starting some great races and uh you know it's trophy cabinet although perhaps not quite as varied as the e30 is nothing to be sifted at. and i think i think that's sort of like you know to to use i uh, load some overused word. It's, it's it's more iconic to me than the e30 and uh i i uh i would have had that in maybe a texaco or the bats livery as my uh number one touring car I'm not a not E thirty as much as I like the
3: E thirty. Well, we, um, I mean, there were two, there were two sort of killer blows for the for the RS five hundred. Marcus and Tim Harvey were in that with me. Um, uh, one of them was that Tim, who driven both, chose the BMW over the Ford, which I was surprised about and was a yeah, quite what a serious. What
2: is Tim What is it? What's
3: the? M1? Well, you know, he's won races in both, which is more <laughs> than anyone on this podcast can say. Um, but the other thing was was the breadth of. Uh, the breadth of success but but on a more sort of serious note sort of as a wider theme you know I was and still am pretty damn furious that the Porsche 917 didn't win the sports card yeah Kevin I I don't understand this
1: why am I looking at a a a special magazine that you have put together and poured your life and soul into
3: and are in charge of (laughs) and the 917 isn't into isn't in it what's happened I I know well um, and that's that's and that's kind of the, the point I wanted to get to which is it's it's kind of meant to be you – know, some people get very furious about, you know, I, I've, I've made the bold decision to try and pick out who the greatest racing driver is in the bookazine, and that will – you know, inevitably up, people will disagree. Matt disagrees with the touring car choice. I disagree with our own sports car choice. My, my answer to you there, Alex, is because it's all sport, not Kevin Turner's sport. You know, I was outvoted. I'm not going to pull rank and just change the pages. Well. Uh, <laughs> so – but that's the point. It's kind of meant to – Sparks and debate, and 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 hopefully a bit of interest. Not, it's not meant to be something that makes people furious. You know, I can, I'm quite happy to read a piece by Gary Watkins on the Porsche nine five six nine six two. As always, he's done a mega job. He would have done a mega job if it had been the nine one seven as well. That, and that, that's the point. You know, I'm sure there are people that are going to disagree with one, all or some of of the choices. But really, the point was to have some, have a bit of fun, bit of a debate and then to delve into some stories because obviously we couldn't do you know motorsport is only getting more and more. There's more and more history we could pick from, you know, when we do the All Sport 75 or the 80 or, or whatever, yeah, we're gonna have to cull even more out. So this was a way of selecting things um hopefully in a in a fun way. So for those that, that get the book or oh, sorry, the, the 70th special, um that's that's the spirit in which it was uh, it was intended really um it wasn't meant to be a a, a fisticuffs at dawn situation
1: absolutely no, i don't think we should we should lose sight of that there's enough negativity and awfulness in the world lester uh, it's meant to be fun that.
3: exactly yeah
1: it it certainly is well i think we we should probably bring this uh, podcast towards the close but kev is there any any other particular highlights you want to pick out from the 70th special that you think people should uh should go and check out immediately if they haven't already and are listening to this podcast before reading the uh, reading the uh the issue
3: yeah, well, the one I guess the one thing that we we haven't uh, mentioned at all, which um, which we should, is is the national motorsport side, um, which actually all sport has always covered over the years, and um, we've tended to be criticised um, for not covering it enough. But um, as we've said many times before, it's got bigger and bigger, and um, actually the second biggest spend in terms of page budget and actual budget after Formula One in all sport is is the national section. Um, and I wanted a national section in there, um, so we've 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 done a um, done a piece. Marcus pies who's the longest serving um, uh, all sport contributor now, I believe, uh, it's gone gone past the forty year mark. So he's he's well past the halfway of all sports history, which is pretty amazing. He's written a piece on, on Cooper and Van Diemen, the sort of two customer junior single seater greats. We picked out some some great club characters. Jerry Marshall will be the obvious one, but um, yeah, uh, there are plenty of others um 750 formula championship which is as old as all sports so that seemed to be a nice parallel uh and then uh marcus has written um because although he's british Touring correspondent as we said before what you really loves is a, is a genius single seater <laughs> so he he wrote the piece on the uh, on the rult rt3 uh and spoke to spoke to some of the key characters actually the most random one was my favorite but i won't i won't spoil it uh by by saying who, who that was but um he's uh uh, spoken spoken to a lot of interesting people about those cars so yeah hopefully from f1 to, to to national racing via sports cars and touring cars rally cars there should be something for everyone i hope that was the aim
2: and obviously its theme is the greatest so i have of course written the piece for this uh for this special did, well that to, <laughs> to be honest that that <laughs> was, can uh, be no
3: no i mean uh, th- that was also important was to try and get every- everyone involved in the process uh, and-, and in in the special even even some people that are more website focused. Um, actually, hats off to to Jake Boxelleg for two reasons. One, following in the footsteps of John John Bolster as technical editor, <laughs> which is which is incredibly tough. John Bolster worked for for thirty four years and didn't miss a deadline, even filed his final piece as he went to hospital with the thing that actually killed him. So the piece came out after he died. So, I mean, that is, that is commitment. So fair fair play there. Um, but also Jake had the very difficult gig of doing a NASCAR piece, which I think it's probably fair to say over the years, NASCAR hasn't been Autosport's greatest area of interest or strength. And he's, uh, he dug out a feature that certainly taught me quite a few things. So, um, yeah, uh, NAS- NASCAR's in there as well. Absolutely written by a very clever bloke. Well done. Well done, Jake.
1: And also, you know, did a, an excellent piece on the, on the Mercedes W11 that you can check out in there. And yeah, I think you, Evan did, everyone did a very fine job. So I think all that remains to say is to say thank you to the three of you for coming on the podcast tonight. I'm also going to say thank you very much for being excellent colleagues. And that extends to the rest of the auto sport team. Everybody works on the website, produces the magazine, designs the magazine, puts the adverts in the magazine. Every, everybody really? contributes to the process and reads the magazine
3: thank and of you course reads to... the magazine
1: of course reads the magazine but you've interrupted me when i was about to thank you specifically um thank you very much being kevin turner for being an excellent boss <laughs> and allowing us to, uh, to put all these together to make these wonderful but, and also because I'm on a ridiculous podcast uh, and 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 the special itself and I do urge everyone to go and read it. So yes, thank you everybody for coming on tonight. Thanks to everybody listening along. Now, just before we go, we'd like to remind you that as well as the release of our 70th anniversary special today, which you can order by going to www.autosport.com slash autosport70. The latest issue of Autosport Magazine is also on sale from today and will be available on the supermarket shelves and in newsagents as well as on the doormats of subscribers there'll be a new issue that might be for you to pick up every thursday packed full of news analysis and the usual stunning photography and of course if you want unlimited access to autosport from the comfort of your home visit autosport.com slash to find out how to subscribe to our digital package we'll be back soon with another episode of the autosport podcast